politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Tim Scott drops out and Democrats try to get around President Biden's incapacity. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Noah Rothman and the sage of authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Moink and Bethlehem College. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please. Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, Tim Scott did not exactly stun the political world, but it was a little bit of a surprise, certainly to his staff, when he goes on Trey Gowdy's show. They have a relationship together, obviously, a couple of South Carolina guys, and just kind of drops, uh, next time I'm in Iowa, it's not going to be as a candidate. And Gowdy's, what? <laughs> did you just suspend your campaign? And he did a, a winsome appearance by Tim Scott, as you would expect. This was a campaign that seemed as though it was getting some traction. He was rising in Iowa, and then the first debate happened. Yeah. You know, I think we should make a clarification that people were surprised that Tim Scott was dropping out in that interview. I don't think anyone should be that surprised that Tim Scott was was dropping out. Uh, I believe the morning he dropped out, he was at 6.7% in the real clear politics average in Iowa, never mind nationally, never mind New Hampshire, all that stuff. And in the last month or two, Tim Scott had dumped all of his resources, was doing all of his campaign stops there. Uh, the super PAC affiliated with him, or sorry, not independent, wink, wink, um, was, you know, canceled a whole bunch of TV ad reservations. Uh, wrote about that, and I said, well, that's a really bad sign. And there was some, oh, that doesn't, yes, it does. When a campaign cancels large ad purchases, generally that's a sign the end is near. Um, I, I wrote in some other publication that uh, it was good that Tim Scott ran, even though he did not succeed. I think it was a worthwhile experiment. Tim Scott, I think, represented, in my mind, a really appealing vision of a post-Trump party, not an anti-Trump party. You could find Tim Scott criticizing Trump here and there, but that really wasn't what his campaign was about. He was not running as Chris Christie. Uh, he was running as his usual sunny, optimistic, you know, deeply patriotic and loving his country himself, um, which, you know, I love that stuff. Now, if you want to argue it's not full spectrum enough, okay, if you want to argue that he did not project, he seemed like someone you want at the table, but not at the head of the table. Okay, I can see those criticisms. Um, but I think the, the the lesson of Tim Scott is that, you know, for example, Rich, how much did you hear about enterprise zones during this campaign season? Mm -hmm. Like almost none, right? 
here's a plan. It was his signature issue. Like, here's how we bring jobs to areas that don't have a lot of jobs that are economically distressed. And I think, say, I don't think it's exaggerating to say the Republican Party doesn't care. That That's just not an issue that gets him jazzed. Not like Trump saying, I will be your vengeance. That's what gets people fired up. And so yeah, that's, but, that's like, have people, Jim, ever, enterprise zones aren't a new idea. They, you know, date back at least to Jack Kemp in the eighties, mm-hmm. but, but this is a, this is an idea in a minor key, even if it's worthy. And there's some debate about it, how, how much it actually works, but this would not in any Republican party at any time, I don't think this would be a, a big issue that would motivate it's people. The ballpark of welfare reform, right? Like the idea of like, we've seen government attempt to help the poor, attempt to help, help those who are disadvantaged and not succeed and instead perpetuate government. Here is an alternative idea to help provide economic opportunity to those who need it and make the country a better place without dumping money into government programs. Like that, that's core Republicanism right there. And I think it's a sign. We just, the Republican Party, at least half the Republican Party, if not more, just doesn't care. Just isn't, doesn't ring their chimes. They want to get mad over what the latest thing that was said on cable news or did you hear what this crazy Hollywood star said or, you know, there was a demonstration of, you know, Tim Scott, like it's a policy thing. And I think the Republican Party base doesn't care that much about policy anymore. They want to be entertained. And so like, this is a very bad state for the party to be in. But that's where it is. And I think it's a rather revealing. You know, look, right now, it looks like Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. We'll talk a bit more about Joe Biden later in this program. And it's like, as if the Republican Party said, we, yeah, we want, to, we want to win in 2024, but we want to win in the hardest way possible. We want to throw <laughs> away any advantage. We, we don't want to do this the easy way. We don't want to pick one of these candidates who have broad appeal to whole. No, no, we want to get the guy who motivates the opposition every bit as much as he motivates his own base, maybe even more. And let's let's hope that Biden's old enough to blow the election all by himself. Yeah. So, no, my, my I, I like Tim Scott. Uh, his affection for America r- runs very deep and is very sincere. Great personal story. But I think that the two things that really hampered this campaign, I don't think he ever really said in any memorable way, why he wanted to be president of the United States. He actually said it, I think, in the third debate, finally. But I can remember maybe one of the things that was kind of to restore faith in our country or something. There were three. I can't, they're so gauzy, I can't remember them. So the rationale wasn't really there. And then you heard the, these complaints from inside his, his operation, and there's some numbers to prove it. I just think he was outworked. You know, he, he did not work as hard as the the other candidates and I think his first debate performance was just was just lazy it's just like a, it's it's enough to be here and it's never enough uh, to be here so I think he's he's a great figure within the party he has a has a, a future as a senator at least but this was not uh, this was I I believe I take Jim's point about the state of the party but this this was not a campaign set to to take off in any time or place in my view I agree with all of that I think it might be, I, I don't know if I subscribe to the idea that he was lazy per se on that debate where he simply disappeared and that was the beginning of the end of the campaign. I just think it was impossible to synthesize the Mr. Nice Guy act that he had built up around, you know, his his persona. That was his raison d'etre for running was to be, you know, a, a, a nicer personality and a more sunny, optimistic personality, as you said, and couldn't reconcile that with the imperative on that stage, which was to establish contrasts mm-hmm. with the people you're running against. Yeah, that's, not a, good, just that's a good point. Trump, but, but yeah, I mean, he just whiffed at every opportunity. And there was that, I think it was not the last debate, but the second debate where the Fox moderators were just 
begging him to have a fight with somebody. <laughs> they gave him every opportunity to uh, to start a fight with Ron DeSantis, to to get in a, a tussle with Nikki Haley, and he did his best. But it just wasn't. It's not his affect. Yeah, it's not yeah, his style. Uh, and God bless him for it. You know, we could use more of that. But as Jim said astutely, the Republican Party is not in the market for that, uh, and it's unfortunate. Because I like Tim Scott, and I think he would uh, bring a lot to the table and have a real positive effect on our politics if he were to assume some sort of a bigger position than he than he has now. But I don't think it's in the cards for him, certainly not in this cycle and maybe not in the future. So the big question now is what comes next? So Tony Fabrizio, who's a pollster for Donald Trump, um, put out some numbers yesterday, I believe, trying to synthesize uh, this movement that will occur in the race, particularly in Iowa, now that uh, Tim Scott is out. And I'm not sure I believe these numbers because they seem far too sunny uh, from their perspective. And they retail precisely the narrative that the Trump campaign wants to retail, which Mm -hmm. is that this doesn't help Ron DeSantis at all. In fact, it hurts Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis loses some some points in this this pro-Trump pack poll. Nikki Haley gains but we're talking about a very small number of voters in the first place. So Trump gets a vote or Trump gets a point. Nikki Haley gets two points. Christie gets two points. All of this assumes that Ron DeSantis's endorsement by a very popular governor of Iowa has had precisely no effect. In fact, it has is, is cost him some support. I don't buy that for a second. We can go back a little bit more to the uh, Ann Seltzer poll, this Des Moines Register NBC News survey that came out a couple of weeks ago, I think, and that allocated the second choice that voters picked in that survey. So Trump or Scott voters second choice was a quarter Trump, a quarter DeSantis, a quarter Haley, roughly no movement. Because we're talking about a very small amount of people in this Iowa, you know, voter base, all that makes sense to me. That is probably just a neutral uh, Mm -hmm. effect on the race, but it's not going to be the effect in New Hampshire. It's not going to be the effect in South Carolina. What we were worried about, is the prospect of a multi-car pileup in South Carolina. Well, now you have one favorite daughter of the state and a a very clear lane in South Carolina, which helps you see roughly, you know, if you put on a very, you know, the the rose-colored glasses and look at the state of the race three, three months from now, you can see the outlines of what looks like a competitive series of early state contests. We have a lot of long way to go here. And a, and a fourth debate in the first week of December, supposedly, mm-hmm. which will which and the criteria for that debate are pretty hard to meet. Right now, we were talking about this on the editorial call yesterday. Right now, it doesn't look to me that even Vivek meets the standards to to get in that debate, which could probably change. And they're all malleable, and everything's in flux, so who knows? But it's a much it's a much more tougher standard to meet that debate. And so, if we get so, to a place so, where so, we're so, Haley. We could have yeah, an actual so, contest. Yeah, so if Vivek doesn't qualify, it would be presumably just DeSantis and Haley? I kind of find it hard to see Vivek not qualifying, but it's 80,000 individual donors, which is, is, is you can make that happen. But it's also 6% in national polls and or 6% in two early states. And Vivek hasn't been there in October. Mm-hmm. So look, we're going to get more polling between now and then. Things can change. But... We're starting to now really like force a winnowing that yeah. uh, the candidates are responding to and the political landscape might respond to. Look, doesn't look like anything's changing ever, any, any way, whatever, right? If you're just looking at the numbers, nothing's changing. It's all very static. 
Yeah. So Charlie, but, but sorry, no, go ahead. No, 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 not at all. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's just a big, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> good. There's, we'll just end it, end it on a, on a, yeah, nice, nice caveat at, at, at the end, just, just on principle. So the winnowing is important, Charlie, obviously it, it needs to happen. And you know, Scott was at 7% in the Seltzer poll in Iowa, which is not not a, you know, it's not Bergam, it's not 1% or whatever. But the problem is you just can't take that crooked number, as you say in baseball, 7 and just add it to, to one person. You know, if you can add it to Haley or DeSantis, it, it makes a difference. They'd be, in, you know, a uh, not quite competitive with Trump, but in a clear second second place. But it's going to get all... Uh, chopped up and and divided up, and and my worry is that y- you can get quite winnowed and still have the race dividing in unfavorable ways. If assuming that you know it, 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 theoretically it can get competitive, if we just t- take that for the sake of argument and say it, it could, you could have Haley easily taking ten or fifteen percent in Iowa, even though it's, it's hard to see her winning in, in Iowa, and, unless all this. Uh, all the kind of secondary polling, internal polling doesn't matter. And she's just, Iowa voters are like, she's the one. But that's kind of hard to see. But she could easily make it impossible for DeSantis uh, to win Iowa and New Hampshire. Christie is not going to drop out before New Hampshire. He has resources. That's the state he's targeting. Easily could take 10% or more from Haley, who seems a better match for for New, New Hampshire than DeSantis does. And and on you go. And, and I, I think if Trump wins Iowa, certainly if he, if he wins Iowa, it's probably all over. But certainly if he wins Iowa and New Hampshire, it's just a, it's just a steamroller. Yes. I welcome any chance to narrow the race down. And much as I like Tim Scott and agree with a great deal that he has to say and enjoy his optimistic affect, which is an underutilized weapon in the Republican arsenal. I am pleased that the number of candidates who aren't Trump is diminishing, even if the support that Scott was attracting will not be allocated in the way that I would ideally prefer, purely because I think that narrowing down races to one-on-ones where possible, clarifies and aids the process. If we do see a debate between DeSantis and Haley and there's no one else on the stage, that will be an extremely useful exercise. And although it won't necessarily yield just one of those figures going into Iowa, it's much more likely to, in my estimation, than a crowd. I think people engage with crowds in a different way than they engage with head-to-head fights. You mean, you mean cr- crowded fields or crowded debates? or Crowded both? fields, crowded debates, mm-hmm. crowded political messaging. This is a personal view, but I think that... It helps Donald Trump that there is him and then there's a blob. I think that's one reason, among many, he skipped the debate, in fact. I think what he's done is otherized everyone else in the field to his advantage. Mm-hmm. I am Donald Trump. I am the incumbent. He's not, but that's his message. I don't need to show up to that circus. 
that's what those sort of people do. That would be a lot harder to pull off if there were only one other person left in the race. If there were a Ron DeSantis or a Nikki Haley running around the country, at that point pulling, let's say for the sake of argument, at least 35%, that's harder to pull off. So I want to see a winnowing process. And whether that starts with only two people making the the next debate, then clarifies which of those is more popular. Perhaps even lead someone to drop out, a boy can dream. And then leads to a one-on-one against Trump. Uh, I think that would be salutary. And as such, I'm pleased that Tim Scott dropped out because clearly he wasn't going to be president. And the fact that he dropped out, as with Mike Pence, I think shows that he actually was running for president. Yeah, yeah. He wanted there, to be. There's a little bit of doubt. There's a little bit of doubt in my mind whether whether he would do the right thing, but but he did. Well, he wanted to be. There wasn't a huge amount of doubt, but a little bit. Yeah, he wanted to be president, and he realized that he wasn't going to be, at least not this time around. Probably never. This is why we have primaries, isn't it? He didn't pull focus. I don't know why. I'm not a good enough analyst of politics or public communication, but he didn't pull focus. We now know that. He realized that he wasn't going to break out, and so he dropped out, and that's it's admirable and useful. So, Jim Garrity, next question to you. If you could pick one of these two to drop out first, very soon, who would it be, Vivek or Chris Christie? Oh, Vivek, just for, I can't stand him. <laughs> like, like, no, no strategic thinking, just, just like personal animus. Vivek and almost any, like, I see the appeal of Trump. I don't I don't share in it. I don't feel it. But Vivek, like, if, if you said, no, I'm really a Ramaswamy guy. I would like, have you had a head injury? What the hell's wrong mm-hmm. with you? <laughs> Noah. Emphatically. Chris Christie. Why? Chris Christie has no rationale to be in the race save to criticize Donald Trump. He is the most disliked of all the Republicans in this field by a lot. He's running a one-state campaign in New Hampshire. The entire point of his campaign seems to be to retail complaints about Donald Trump that don't register with Republicans and to play a spoiler for everybody who could possibly mount a credible challenge to Donald Trump. He does not belong in this race. He's said some good things that are valuable, that are important for Republicans to internalize. They're not listening. He needs to get out. I want Vivek to stay in as long as possible. Vivek draws the populist vote. Whatever votes that are in, that are in Vivek's camp, when they're not in Vivek's camp, will be in Donald Trump's camp. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason for me to get rid of him. And also, he serves as a very useful foil for anti-Trump Republicans because he's the guy that can criticize as a proxy yeah. for Donald Trump. Yeah, there's no. Those are all. Those are all excellent points. Certainly, if DeSantis is gone and and Haley has the shot at Trump in New Hampshire, having a vacant there is not a, is not a bad thing for her purposes. Whereas having Christie in could, could absolutely be a killer. Charlie. I can see this both ways around. Obviously I want Vivek to drop out cause I want to fire him out of a cannon, but I can see a virtue notwithstanding Noah's good points in having all of the Trumpy energy focused in one person and having a debate about that movement without it being split between two people. I would So what 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 do you mean split between Vivek and Trump? Yeah. I would welcome mm-hmm. it it's possible that we're never going to have this debate. It's possible that Trump's just going to win. 
but I would welcome a debate about whether or not Trump and what he represents is a good thing within the Republican Party, has led to good outcomes, and is the best way to fight Joe Biden. And I think that that is probably easier to achieve if the Trumpy candidate in the race is Trump and no one else. That there is no way of getting around it by saying, well, yeah, all of those things, they apply to Trump, but they don't apply to Vivek. He's new and young and fresh and untarred. I want to have that fight. I think that's ultimately what this primary is going to have to come down to if someone other than Trump is going to win. The Republican electorate is not going to decide that Donald Trump is terrible. The Republican electorate could be convinced, could be convinced to agree that given the stakes of this election, given that we want to get rid of Joe Biden, given the spiraling crises at home and abroad, that Donald Trump is not worth the risk. And I think that's harder while there's a Trump ballot candidate in the race. (laughs) So although I think that there's a strong case made by Noah, and I probably on balance would agree that Chris Christie ought to go to clear the way for others, I can see an advantage in having one avatar of obsequious Trumpism and then hopefully one or two avatars of the alternative and having that argument rather than trying to navigate through these various Mm -hmm. fields with 100 people in them. So I think Noah makes very good points and may just be 100% absolutely correct. I would still go with Vivek and not just because I want to shoot him out of a cannon. I just really think it has to happen in Iowa. I think that's the main Trump vulnerability. And even though Vivek, in theory, could hurt Trump a little bit in New Hampshire, his 5% or whatever in in Iowa could be a a, a real problem. So I take all Noah's points, especially about Chris Christie. I mean, the whole Christie thing is, I'm going to get on the debate stage with Donald Trump and destroy the guy, right? (laughs) And and there's obviously Trump hasn't been at the debate. So Christie has more or less had to run as kind of a standard like presidential candidate, but but one who was governor, you know, how many years ago? So it's just, it hasn't made any sense as unfavorables are completely off the charts. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, our friends at Moink. Moink, indeed. I am Moink's number one fan. Sarah Shitty is number two, maybe even number three, depending on where Rich is at this particular moment. I haven't looked at the standings recently, but what I do know... <laughs> you're, you're seven and two, and everyone else is six and three. <laughs> oh, I think I'm higher than that. On your heels. <laughs> I think I'm the number one seed when it comes to Moink. And Moink's my number one seed as well, because it is just that good. I like knowing exactly where my meat comes from. I did grow up in a rural area, and with Moink, that place is from small family farms all across the country. You can help save the family farm and get access to the highest quality meat on earth when you join the Moink movement today. Now, what is Moink? Moink is a buy-mail subscription service that delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm does it better. The Moink difference is a difference you can taste and you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent too. 
You choose the meat delivered in every box, like ribeyes or chicken breasts, pork chops, salmon fillets, and much more. Plus, you can cancel any time, but you won't want to. In fact, on Friday evening, my seven-year-old asked my wife whether for breakfast the next day he could have bacon and eggs without the eggs. <laughs> Just bacon then. That bacon came from Moink. It is that good. Which is why Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted. And Ring doorbell founder Jamie Simonoff jumped at the chance to invest in Moink. Now, if you want to keep American farming going by signing up, you could do so at moinkbox.com slash editors right now. And you will get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time only. That's M-O-I-N-K box.com slash editors. Awesome. Thanks so much, Charlie. So Noah, the debate we've been having for a very long time now over civilian casualties in Gaza and whether Israel is taking all due care to avoid them has reached its logical conclusion with Hamas. And this, this wasn't any secret. Everyone knew about it beforehand. You wrote a very prescient po- piece about what would happen when, when Israel actually got to this facility, but the El Shifa Hospital, which is an actual hospital above a, a massive Hamas uh, command center and military facility. So, of course, we've had people saying, how dare Israel target a hospital? Haven't you read the Geneva Convention and the rules of war? You can't do that. But, of course, as John Pedortz, our, our great friend, and others have pointed out, the, the, the rules of war say that w- once you establish a military facility or have fighters at a hospital, then it loses its protected status. So the whole point of Hamas citing its military operations in such a sensitive location is to get the international reaction it has gotten, including for the Biden administration, with some exceptions. And the spokesman for the State Department said, yeah, we want Israel to be to be careful around hospitals. But wouldn't it be great if Hamas didn't, didn't put their stuff at hospitals? <clears throat> well, that was good. That statement from a State Department spokesperson. But it comes at the same time as we're hearing from Joe Biden himself and much of his administration some really weird things about how Israel is conducting itself, conducting this war, and how it should conduct this war. Joe Biden yesterday called for a less intrusive, I believe was the word he used approach to clearing out hospitals, which serve as command and control nodes for Hamas's active combat operations against the IDF. I don't know how you pull that off, specifically because Hamas doesn't want to pull it off. The enemy gets a vote. And the enemy's vote here is that they want to conduct these operations, these combat operations, in and around uh, civilian infrastructure. This isn't the only hospital. Al-Shifa has one of the more extensive tunnel networks under it and has been a command post for Hamas for years. Anybody who's even peripherally aware of how this conflict has unfolded and didn't just tune into this four weeks ago is aware of this, but it's not the only one. IDF took CNN cameras on a tour of one similar hospital uh, that has a tunnel network near it, leading into it, uh, revealed uh, some arms and ordnance that is there, some evidence that the um, uh, October 7th, uh, terrorists took hostages back there and tied them up to chairs. There were baby bottles, what have you, improvised infrastructure, World Bank facilities in this, uh, or World Bank infrastructure in this facility. Um, so it demonstrates 
a, I mean, unless you're, you're so incapable of suspending your uh, assumptions about the IDF and how it conducts itself demonstrates the scale of the challenge in front of Israel and exposes the degree to which the administration is of two minds on this conflict that are actively at war with each other, now spilling into the public. We've heard so much about these revolts among State Department officials and USAID. The New York Times uh, was detailing one this morning in which the administration like took a very you know concerned meeting with these people, and there were tears, tears, literal tears, where people were crying over how the administration has conducted itself yeah, it's by like aligning. A, it's, a, it's like a college campus. It's pathetic. It's absolutely like a college. And this is exactly it. I mean, we've been spending 10 years indoctrinating a generation in this uh, in, intersectional social justice milieu that renders uh, Jews in particular, not Israelis, Jews, uh, as an oppressive um, entity, a hostile oppressive entity. And where did we think they were going all these 10 years? Well, they went to the State Department. They went to USAID. They went to breaking news desks at every major media institution. And this is what we've incubated, and this is what we're confronted with now. Um, the Biden administration is, is good rhetorically, but it's getting it's getting weak in the knees. It's getting cold feet here, and it's only going to get worse. We saw basically the, the Hamas-led regime collapse yesterday. The, the regime itself has lost control. It has dissolved. The, uh, the IDF took over the parliament building where they, you know, this really small, you know, perfunctory. Very, 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 very important institution in, in uh, the national life of Gaza, that the parliament, just, just like Westminster. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's there for symbol, but it, it, nevertheless, the symbol is important that the regime is now gone. And what we're left is with is now an anarchic environment in Gaza. And it, the only entity there capable of establishing something akin to a civilian led government entity, a provisional government, is the IDF, is Israel. So we should be rooting, we would think, for a speedy conclusion of this conflict to restore the kind of civilian control everybody says they want. And anything that the administration does that's counter to that objective, like crying in the, in the State Department over, over the IDF's actions, or hindering their capacity to execute these operations in hospitals that should have been evacuated when the IDF called for them to be evacuated on October 12th, more than a month ago, all the opportunity in the world to do this. And the IDF is now presently providing civilian material to this hospital. New York Times was like, we can't confirm it, but the IDF released a phone call between military officials in Israel and uh, hospital administrators in Gaza, where they're providing them with incubators for, for children, oxygen, for people who need to breathing apparatuses, given literally packing them into cars and shipping them off all the photographic evidence you need to demonstrate that they're trying their hardest to minimize yeah, and, civilian and, casualties. And, wasn't and there, the exact opposite is happening with Hamas. They want to maximize civilian casualties. Yeah. And wasn't there a story, Noah, that they actually delivered fuel to the hospital, but the hospital wouldn't take it? Yeah. Hamas it, they, they didn't want it. They offered, yes, they offered yeah. fuel to, and which is dual use, which Hamas uses to fuel mm -hmm. its rockets, to provide power and infrastructure and, and, and um, aerate the tunnels, ventilate the tunnels. And they know this, they know they're giving aid and comfort to their, uh, to their battlefield enemy and are doing it nonetheless, anyway, nonetheless, even though they know they're not going to get any credit for it in the international scene, it's just something that they do. Yeah. So Charlie, it's, it's just amazing. The juxtaposition between this, terrorist group with a, a blood-curdling lack of resolve, a lack of regard for civilians. We've, we've seen reports that they've been shooting civilians who've been trying to flee because if the civilians leave, then their, their human shields 
are gone and the just the the gullibility or just the malice uh, and the part of sectors elements of western opinion totally ignoring this part of the equation propaganda works i think it's as simple as that the propaganda works this is why they do it they are aware of the internal political dynamics in the West, and they use them to great effect. They're not alone in this. China is extremely good at using our internal politics against us. The Soviet Union was quite good at it, but that got overtaken by better communicators. But here, the forces in Gaza are so good at it that when the Washington Post runs cartoons making fun of the means by which the propaganda is achieved in the form of a cartoon that showed a Gaza fighter covered in babies and children, innocent people, he was using as human shields, the people that they're trying to manipulate go to the Washington Post editorial board and complain so loudly that the Washington Post takes it down. Yeah, by the great Michael Ramirez. Right. So not only is the propaganda working, but literally a cartoon pointing out the propaganda is removed by the people who are susceptible to the propaganda. You just cannot get more on the nose than that. I... Cannot help but think of the famous phrase, useful idiots. There is a very, very big difference between having a nuanced view of the overall situation, not of Hamas. If you have a nuanced view of Hamas, you're a moron, or worse. But there's a very big difference between having a nuanced view of the overall situation. There's a very big difference between being genuinely appalled or outraged or upset by the idea of innocent life being lost, which happens a lot in war, There's a very big difference between thinking that Israel's particular tactics ought to be changed and buying into some of the nonsense that we have seen over the last month. And I'm afraid that far too many people who consider themselves to be smart and learned and switched on have done that. And once again, I've proven myself to be naive because I have been surprised by the scale of it. Again, I thought that we would see some people in this department or that department in this university or that university coming out and spreading what would in any other circumstance be called misinformation. But the sheer scale of it and the speed with which it has become the dominant complaint is remarkable to me and i am perhaps going to stereotype myself here but i think that these are the wages of intersectional thinking that sorts people both at home and in the international context by their immutable characteristics or their relative characteristics and proceeds accordingly and Hamas is actually playing this really really well I have to say and uh, making headway in the west by 
knowing exactly what it is that they need to say at any given point to maximize the resistance to Israel doing what it has to do, which is degrading Hamas so that it's no longer able to do that. Jim? Well, there's not a lot to add that hasn't been said. Uh, A lot of what Noah and Charlie just said is a lot about what I wrote about in today's Morning Jolt. Um, I think everyone should watch that Nick Robertson report. Uh, The IDF also put out a, a, you know, it's a version of that footage uh, they go to the children's hospital or one of the children's hospitals in Gaza City. They show the grenades they found. They show the rifles they found. They show the suicide vest. They show the chair where they believe one of the hostages was being held. Now, if you're, a, I'm sure there are people out there who say, ah, this is all put together by the IDF. Well, we know Hamas uses hospitals. I went back and I found at least two New York Times articles where they describe Hamas militants running around in this particular hospital. And we, uh, the interesting anecdote, by the way, of a 18-year-old who was a, uh, I believe, Palestinian Islamic Jihad fighter, comes into the hospital and has a minor wound, but he's insisting the doctors treat him first so he can get back out there uh, and fight the Israelis some more, and he's smiling, and he's happy, he's just overjoyed. And the reporter for the New York Times says, why are you happy? Do you see all the suffering around you? And he says, well, I'm going to be a martyr, and these people are going to be martyrs too, so they should be happy. And that's the mindset we're dealing with here. Um, I too am glad the State Department. I, I would glad the State Department spokesman came out and said this is ultimately all Hamas's fault. So stop yelling at Israel, yell at Hamas. I'd like to hear that from the president. Uh, unfortunately, Joe Biden has now cast himself in the role. Metaphor I used in today's morning jolt is: you're up on the roof trying to work, put up the Christmas lights, or or do something slightly dangerous, and your spouse tells you, "Be careful." Well, of course, I'm being careful. Thank you. Thank you for that suggestion to be helpful, to be careful. I'm going, you know, I recognize the risks. I'm in this body, right? Joe Biden, as, as, as the Israeli Defense Forces close is, in. Is, is, in Joe, is Joe Biden in that body? Is Joe Biden in his body? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, we'll Joe get to Biden, this in the next segment. Joe Biden is yelling, be careful. Well, yeah. You know, and, and there was that statement from Jake Sullivan. Well, we don't want to see firefights in hospitals. Well, it's not like the IDF wants to see firefights in hospitals either. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody's aiming for that. But when Hamas hides in the hospital, that's where they got to go to go get him. So it is this utterly useless, pointless, you know, nattering uh, from the Biden administration. And, uh, you know, like I I assume that's all done to placate this internal dissent. Apparently, like 400 people anonymously signed a letter saying the administration's got to change its policies. Now, first of all, if you're not willing to put your name behind it, like, you know, how committed are you? But the second thing is, you know, you're always welcome to quit. Oh, you want to keep collecting your paycheck? Okay, well, you can carry out the president's policies or you can leave. Those are your options. You're not supposed to, you know, try to grind the gears from the inside. But you know what? I guess the, oh, they're doing their darndest to fulfill everybody's you know, uh, perceptions of a deep state. So, Noah, ex a question to you. When all is sudden, said and done in this conflict current chapter of this larger conflict, however you want to put it, Israel's international image will be better, worse, or the same? That's an interesting um, proposition because I don't know where this conflict is going to go. Um, One thing I think that uh, a few of the dogs that haven't been barking here are the Sunni states in the Middle East. Uh, And there's some speculation, I think pretty well-founded speculation, the timing of this attack in particular and given Iran's peripheral involvement at the very least, if not more, um, was timed to derail the uh, rapprochement, the normalization of relations between Jerusalem and Riyadh. And 
we have seen, you know, a lot of perfunctory barking from the Sunni capitals about Israel's uh, you know, methods of self-defense, uh, but it hasn't seemed to derail the peace process yet. Now, I don't suspect that Israel's image will be well um, maintained in, in Western Europe, for example, which is predisposed towards a lot of the narratives that are anti-Israel on their face or even anti-Semitic. But in its region, I don't necessarily think that the balance of power will have shifted against, or the balance of opinion, rather, will have shifted against Israel, especially if it executes a rather clean um, neutralization of Hamas and takes an Iranian chessboard off the off the board, or chess piece off the board. That's valuable to the Sunni states and the, and the Sunni kingdoms. Um, we What we don't know is how Hezbollah is going to respond and whether there will be a northern front yet. Um, the threat really does persist, and there is the suggestion that once it, Gaza does, if Hamas is dissolving Gaza, that Hezbollah will enter the conflict. By the way, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm monologuing, but there was some something out of the Defense Department that Axios reported on yesterday, which is suggestive also of the administration's and this weird deep state situation that's happening in the administration against Israel, where they reported the idea, reported out this idea that officials are telling Barack Ravid of Axios that. Israel is, quote, trying to provoke Hezbollah and create a pretext for a wider war in Lebanon that could draw the U.S. <laughs> and other countries further into the conflict. That's what they reported. That's tinfoil hat stuff. That's bonkers. If you actually believe that, much less are willing to tell a reporter that, you are so far gone, so blinkered, so unable to see the contours of your environment that I have no faith that you will accurately assess how this conflict unfolds, what Israel's defense obligations are, what America's defense obligations are. So no, I think this administration is captured to a certain extent that will prevent it in the long run from being able to clearly see uh, what the contours of this conflict were and how Israel conducted itself in a fair and impartial way. Charlie, international opinion, better, worse, the same about Israel. I think it's going to be worse because as I say, I think a lot of this propaganda is working. And I think it's going to take time to counter it. I'm not convinced that in America, Israel will be in a worse position, because although I think the propaganda has worked here, I think it is working in our elite class, which is wildly out of touch with the country on the question of Israel and Hamas. But across the world, this has been a coup for Hamas, disgracefully, and I think at least in the medium term, Israel's stock is going to drop. Jim? Marginally down, uh, but it was already pretty low, so it's not like there was a ton of room left to drop. So I think clearly worse, but its friends will exhibit more resolve, and the balance of opinion here in the United States, fortunately, is still in the right place. With that, let's pause and hear from our second sponsor this episode, Bethlehem College, where students study the great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the Great Commission. Trajectories of life are being set for young men and women in the pivotal period between the ages of 18 and 25 at Bethlehem College. Students wrestle with these realities, not in a 200-person classroom, but in a 200-person college. Bethlehem College is not a Bible college, but everything in the academic program is saturated with the Bible. The school's chancellor, John Piper, said recently that when he looked at the upcoming generation of students, he observed that their God is too small and their reading is too passive. So Bethlehem's aims are to train students in assiduous attentiveness in all their reading, whether reading their Bible or whether 
Reading the World. Bethlehem calls this approach education in serious joy and delivers it at a price that ranks as one of the lowest tuition rates in American Christian higher education, only about $7,500 a year. Bethlehem College, education in serious joy. To apply or request more information, visit bcsmn.edu slash editors. That's bcsmn.edu slash editors. Please check it out. So Charlie, my friend Jonathan Martin, who briefly had a, a tenure here at National Review as a political reporter. He now writes a reported column at Politico that is terrific. And he had a particularly notable entry the other day about how freaked out Democrats are about Joe Biden. I'm not plugged in to Democratic circles, but I occasionally run into Democrats in green rooms, various places. And it, it's just the, the level of just, just from that experience, I can discern that the level of whispered conversations about Biden is at the, the same level as whispered conversations about Donald Trump. When everyone, you know, private conversations, oh my gosh, this, this guy is, is crazy. What are we doing? And this was true during most of the presidency as well. And then they'd go on air and say, oh, every, everything's great. He's, he's, a, he's a, a very stable genius. Same thing with Biden. Democrats are freaked out. They know how weak he is. They, they recognize the age thing. They, they can see it and feel it like everyone else. But they'll say this in private and then go in public and say everything's fine. Uh, Martin reports on this dynamic and says that everyone realizes that Biden does not have the capacity to serve in office anymore the way a traditional president would. And Democrats are just resolved to find ways around this. Well, I wrote a piece about this because it struck me that the piece should have ended after the paragraph that everyone highlighted. In Supreme Court cases, you often see the justices say that we will address the first question, but there's no threshold that's been breached for us to get to the second. And I felt reading this as if had I written the piece I would have concluded that Joe Biden was unfit for office and stopped there. That's not a criticism of Jonathan Martin, who probably had a different brief than I would have had. But simply put, if you believe, as Martin seems to, if you are being told, as Martin seems to have been, if you conclude, as I think Martin did, that Joe Biden, despite his protestations and possibly even his denial, is incapable of being president in a way that every other president has been president. And not just when it comes to campaigning, but when it comes to governing, then Joe Biden can't be president. And the rest of Martin's piece is an exercise in futility. Joe Biden is not going to get better than he is at the moment. Joe Biden is not ill. Joe Biden is old. Joe Biden is asking the American people to keep him as its president for the next five years more. He is doing that while, it seems, inspiring panic among those around him, while inspiring his own staff to cut off his access to the press 
for fear that he will embarrass himself, while inspiring journalists to hint furiously at his infirmity. I think that we need to step back for a moment from the horse race politics that we like in the media and recognize that we are talking here not about some abstraction or episode of the West Wing, but about an actual person. Republicans don't win the White House. Democrats don't win the White House. People do. In the United States, we have a system of government that vests in a person certain powers under Article 2. That person takes the oath, not a party, not the staff, not their chief advisor, a person. Joe Biden, if Jonathan Martin's reporting is correct, is ineligible to be that person. Now, of course, that is not self-executing. I don't get to decide that. But if Jonathan Martin is correct, we are going to have a problem on our hands. Because at some point, either Joe Biden will functionally not be president, and Martin hints at that by saying that Biden's staff already handles him, which means his staff is president, or he's going to prove literally incapable of doing the job and trigger either a straightforward application of the 25th Amendment or perhaps a constitutional crisis. So I read this piece and I thought, why are there 2,000 words after the initial acknowledgement describing how Joe Biden can become president again? <laughs> he's not supposed to become president again if he is in this state. It is very difficult to convey that to him now. It is very difficult to do anything about it if a president is in office and is incapable of executing their duties. We saw this in 1919 when Woodrow Wilson had a stroke and his wife effectively became president of the United States and didn't just cut out the rest of the White House and the executive branch, but actually, as far as she could, cut out Congress as well. That's difficult to avoid. What is much less difficult to avoid is not putting them back in the White House again. Now, in 1920, Woodrow Wilson wanted to be nominated for a third term. His total disregard for American norms, of course, extended to his rejection of the two-term rule, which at that point was informal. And the Democratic Party said, absolutely not. You've had a stroke. You've had Spanish flu. You cannot be president once again. I understand how difficult it would be for the Democratic Party to do this. I'm not a pie-in-the-sky guy. I understand I know what that would do to their election chances. I know how scared they are, not without reason, of Donald Trump becoming president again and so on. But it is just worth saying, and I'm quite happy to say it as someone who doesn't have the same job as Jonathan Martin and has no role within the broader democratic archipelago, that if Joe Biden is in that state, he can't be president again, and that is going to become clear at some point sooner rather than later. Yeah, so Jim, there, there's actually uh, two notable things last week or so. One, Biden was giving a speech somewhere, and there was a loud bang. And he said, uh, you know, are you all right? He, no one had fallen down, but he was just, are you all right? I just want everyone to know that wasn't me. That was funny. That was funny. That, uh, and, and there's nothing in politics like self-deprecating humor. Then you had him at, uh, vet, on Veterans Day at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And, you know, from a podium, you know, it's never great. But sometimes you find sounds, a lot of times he just sounds sounds fine. But you get him in these settings where there aren't verbal cues about what to do next. 
and it's it's bad, you know. And so he he puts the reef down, and then he doesn't know where to go. He, he starts to leave, and then he comes back, and he's looking confused at the officer standing in front of him wearing white gloves, and and the officer kind of you know, directs him directs him go go back to that line, sir, that that, that line of a of officialdom. And we've just seen that again and again. We've talked about this a lot. But all you need to do as an ordinary American is see that and you know immediately what's going on, right? And no amount of spin is going to make it go away. No amount of lack of coverage is, is going to make you change your mind. You, you, just, you just see it and you, know, and you know what it is. And just getting around that, I can see how you know, they're likely running against Trump. Trump has a lot of vulnerabilities. They're going to go nuclear on him as you know, totally understandable. Any party in that position, that's what they would do. But I think this is just the big, the big question mark. The age thing is not just like, okay, people don't trust you as much as they might on foreign affairs. It's, it's, there's this deep question of just capacity and whether that means even if the alternative seems unacceptable on a lot of levels, if you think the alternative is actually capable of doing the job physically and mentally and the incumbent isn't, mm-hmm. what, how, how does that net out? Yeah. I mean, like. Something I, th- I think it kind of gets overlooked in all this. So let's say there's a controversy over Israel and Hamas. Some some Americans have been to Israel, some have not. Some Americans may feel very familiar with this issue or very passionate or not. I fear almost every American has dealt with someone who's elderly, right? Al- almost everybody's had a grandparent, a parent. Almost everybody has seen a loved one decline. This is not a rare occurrence in life, unfortunately. And so everybody like is going to draw on that experience. Now, some people... Uh, in their 80s, declined very slowly. Some declined very quickly. We've 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 all you know seen people have different experiences. So I think there is that trepidation that whatever state Biden is in at almost 81 today, what's he going to be like in six months? What's he going to be like in a year? What's he going to be like in theoretically five and a half years? Which is when you know according to plan, he will still be president of the United States. Right now, I, I don't want to sound like a bre- broken record on this podcast, but I'm just going to observe. I like. Charlie says when it becomes clear, I, I think it is clear. I, I think if Joe Biden could do early morning events, he would do early morning events. I think he doesn't do them because he can't. I think he doesn't do a lot of night events because he gets very tired. He sundowns. If he could be active on weekends instead of spending the weekend at one of his Delaware beach houses, he would do it. This is not a matter of he makes these deliberate choices to stay away from the cameras for three or four times a day. And then when he comes out in front of the cameras to just read it off the, pro- the teleprompter, I think it's. I don't think it's accidental. He doesn't do a lot of sit-down interviews anymore. I, I, it, this is all because he's only got a certain number of hours the day that he's good. So we already have a part-time president. The like as as Martin says, we can see it because if he were a normal president, he'd be out doing a lot more. I, I think he's just got a certain number of hours the day. I've heard stories that events get can- with the president get canceled. Now look, presidents cancel events for all kind for all kinds of reasons. Maybe he needs to get a security briefing. Maybe there's something really important going on. But maybe it's also the fact that this guy who's almost, he turns 81 later this month, I think about a week, is acting like an 81-year-old. Most of us have been around 81-year-olds. A lot of them are retired at that age. They're not out trying to not just do a job, to do one of the toughest jobs in the, in the world. So we, we can see him. We can see the meandering comments. We can see the wandering. We can see the shuffling of the feet. We know how he randomly brings up corn pop and stuff like that. Like this, you know, like this is not the Joe Biden we saw when he was vice president. So... You know, it's like the emperor's new clothes, except everybody's saying, hey, the emperor's naked. Like, this is not something that's, you know, people are, are you know, can't say three quarters of the country think he's too old to do the job. So the idea they can stage manage this and somehow 
Jedi mind trick us into thinking that he's younger than he is. Like, no, of course not. We, we're, we're already convinced that this, the sale is done. We already, the conclusions have been drawn. The idea that, oh, somehow by the right kind of stage managing, it'll change. No, that's ridiculous. The only question is, presuming the Republican Party nominates Trump, do you want the crazy guy or do you want the senile guy, America? Good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Noah, uh, it, it's, it's, as we talked, talked about this also a fair amount, it's very hard to leverage out an incumbent president out of office who, who doesn't want to go. It seems to me the, the one person that has the most influence here would be Jill. If she, she actually said, honey, sorry, you're just no longer up, up for it, that might make a difference. You know, but she's, she's also really wanted to be there for a long time. And I'm sure it's, it's great to be a first lady. And as uh, Jeff, our friend Jeff Blahar pointed out in a post, you read the rest of the Martin column about things that, that Democrats can do to get, get around this, this vulnerability. And, you know, there's a typical, you know, go after Trump hard, of course. But then the rest of it is like, really, you know, Rahm Emanuel, who I think is, is a very effective guy, bring him back to Japan, you know, to run the White House or to run the campaign. You know, that really is going to make up for, for this, this uh, yawning deficit at the heart of Biden's presidency. Just so much of it is wish casting. It's, it's absolute wish casting. Um, Charlie, with typical British understatement, uh, didn't emphasize the fact that this could all be imposed on Democrats without their consent or uh, you know, much anticipation. Joe Biden can have an event that will compel them to either acknowledge reality or for Joe Biden to uh, simply concede to the realities of his infirmities. And that wouldn't they like a competitive primary in that event? Uh, because it would just simply fall to Kamala Harris, who is by all accounts uh, uniquely untalented and maladroit. Um, What I haven't heard from just about anybody who's trying to identify how Joe Biden's going to navigate these profound challenges of this political environment is what the heck happens after election day, assuming that they win. It's pretty much just the game is all about getting to election day, at which point I suppose... Joe Biden, in a, like a John Henry fashion, drives the last spike and keels over because his mission in life is is done. They're trying to articulate some sort of a rationale for a Biden presidency, a Biden second term, and haven't really settled on one. It's all political arguments, and the political arguments are garbage. I read with uh, great anticipation this piece, a companion piece in Politico this morning, dovetailing with this Jonathan Martin piece about how alarmed the White House is by the fact that the economic news is just great. The economics are just great, but nobody buys it. Yeah, 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 we get it. Nobody buys it because prices are high and you can't tell somebody, you can't argue somebody into the belief that the economy is great when they experience these kind of high prices. So how do we argue around it? Well, and, and this piece retailed the idea that they, there are suggestions from progressive groups about a pathway forward to turn around this economic message. And the only thing that they suggested was this idea that they could propose an expansion of Social Security, which would be funded by taxes on billionaires, which is a nonsense gimmick and doubles down on the kind of Elizabeth Warrenism that this administration committed itself to and put itself in the position that it's in now. The economic malaise that they have incepted, that they have imposed on this country is a result of leaning heavily into these pie-eyed progressive policy prescriptions. They don't have a rationale for a second term because they don't think Joe Biden's going to make it very far into a second term, if he makes it at all. The idea here is that let's get him across the threshold, at which point he's a spent force. We all can see it. It's subtextual. 
but it's not hard to read the subtext that this is all just a game that ends in November of next year. And Republicans have an advantage there because Donald Trump is to all, you know, for better or for worse, he's going to serve out that term and everybody knows it. Uh, At least voters will be heading to the polls knowing that they're casting a ballot for something they will be getting when voters will be casting a ballot for Joe Biden under the assumption that he's not going to be there for long. I mean, Trump wouldn't necessarily serve it outside of a prison, but at least he would serve right, it right. Out, <laughs> of course. So, Charlie, I have a question to you. Let's shift gears. Rate your level of shock and outrage at the fact that San Francisco has managed, finally, after decades of decline and disorder, has managed to clean up its streets for the arrival of President Xi for a summit with the aforementioned President Biden zero Nothing to see here. This is what societies do in their cities when they have a, a big meeting that's going to be broadcast all over the world. Ten, it shows that it was always within the city's capacity to make its streets better, but it just never bothered. It's definitely closer to ten than zero. I do think it's outrageous, and I think that Gavin Newsom's excuse doesn't make a great deal of sense. He said that when you have people over, you tidy up the house. Well, that's true. We do do that. But if I only ever tidied up the house when we had people over, I would essentially be telling my wife that I don't care about her opinion or consider her to be important. You also tidy up the house if you live in the house, if you respect the other people in the house. We constantly tell our children to tidy up their room, to tidy up the living room. If they make a mess, fix it, because we live there as well. Oh, in that analogy... That's because I care about my children and I want them to care about me. There are people who live in San Francisco who are really bothered by the mess. It's not just dictators of China that care about (laughs) tidiness. And what Gavin Newsom is saying, in effect, is that the dictator of China is far more important than they are. It was a weird answer, and I think it's flatly indefensible. So, Charlie, we're putting at you at an eight or nine? Yeah, I would say an eight and a nine. Also, because some of the reasons that are given as to why this can't be fixed are invisible here. I mean, we hear about, well, this court case said that, or homelessness is more difficult than you think. Well, we can't just go in there and pick people up off of the street. Where would they go? But Newsom seemed to acknowledge absolutely none of the arguments that are usually leveled Mm -hmm. as explanations as to why San Francisco and Los Angeles and other cities look like this when the dictator of China was in town. Well, if that is sufficiently important to overrule all of the Mm -hmm. usual objections, then why isn't the upset of the people of San Francisco who pay taxes? It just is beyond me. Well put. Jim, we have an eight or nine on the board. That's about where I'd put it. Um, look, you know, for a long time, like, ah, oh, this is so hard. It takes forever. Uh, you know, this can't be done. And then, look, you know, let's sort of point out, President Biden is here. A whole bunch of, you know, foreign leaders are here. But, and it, you know, yes, you try to put your best foot forward. But, like, who, who does the city government work for? Who pays their salaries? Who's paying, by the way, that 8.6% sales tax on everything in San Francisco? They pay an enormous amount of money in taxes in, in San Francisco. And they have gotten piss poor city government services for a long time. And all it took was Xi Jinping coming to town where all of a sudden everything looks a whole lot better. Gavin Newsom deserves every bit of the grief he's getting over this. 
Noah. Uh, I'm definitely 10. Uh, if this thing goes up to 11, I'm going to punch <laughs> it up there too. None more black. This <laughs> whole enterprise is an insult and it, and actually a kind of an unapologetic insult to San Franciscans. Um, you have, you know, Caltrans, uh, the department of transportation officials saying, well, we don't want dignitaries seeing graffiti, which assumes that it's okay for everybody else to mm-hmm. see it. As Jim yeah. said, <laughs> crime was a way of life, right? It was just basically life experiences, which is something a, a police commissioner said dismissively. The idea that you can get rid of homeless people with vast government programs, lavish government funding, all this stuff was impossible to do. And then it turns out that you don't need a bigger budget. You don't even need budgetary gimmicks. You don't need to build big new facilities to hustle off uh, uh, the homeless encampments, to rouse the homeless, put them into vans, get them into facilities, get them into rehab facilities. All of this stuff could have been done. Just they didn't want to. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to. And the only reason they're doing it now is because of the fear of embarrassment, not just G. But the memory, this is in the San Francisco Chronicle, the memory of hosting Super Bowl 50 where the nation's media fixated, sometimes almost gleefully on the city's homelessness crisis. So this is just a way of life for them that they can languish in, that their citizens have to accept. But the second it reflects poorly on the board of supervisors, then it's a big problem. What, how craven, what, a, what utter disregard and disrespect for the citizens of San Francisco. They deserve better and they should demand it. Absolutely. It's a 10. Shows this, it's been clear all along, but this is a matter of will. There weren't insuperable obstacles to it. And if it's good enough for foreign dignitaries, it should be good enough for our own citizens every single day. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our metered Paywall, you're away if you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads, especially the most obnoxious ads that might be blinking in your field of sight and distracting you from our content will magically disappear your way if it floats your boat to comment and on articles and blog posts and get invited to events and calls with the writers, editors, and various other conservative figures. has a great deal all around, and most importantly, a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you are not a member, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of Plus today, tomorrow, or the day after. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim, you went out to Minneapolis for a big concert. Yes, uh, this was our annual anniversary trip after a year in which I've gone to uh, Ukraine, Taiwan, and Transnistria. I decided to go someplace genuinely dangerous, Minneapolis. Uh, but lovely city, a really enjoyable time. I know everybody thought that it burned down in the uh, George <laughs> Floyd riots, but the downtown is you know a little chilly, but but very manageable. For, not bad for that time of year. They kept saying it was a heat wave in the <laughs> 40s. Uh, but with the Billy Joel and Stevie Nicks are doing a one night only uh, tour of about 10 cities. I think they have one more stop on the tour. And we're like, yeah, my wife and I are like, should we, uh, should we go? Yeah, sure. Let's go. We've seen Billy Joel in concert before. Great concert. They're both very good for age seven in their mid seventies. God bless them for being able to, you know, first of all, the, the Vikings football stadium, us bank stadium packed. Uh, they had, the stage was on one side where the end zone would be. So I'm guessing, you know, 60 some thousand people, uh, rocking the place An older crowd. My wife and I were among the younger ones, but it was, you know, we all had a very good time and just a, 
God bless anybody who can like still cause so much joy, still entertain people, still have so many wonderful time doing what they love, as I said, into their mid-70s. So God bless both of them and you know, glad everybody had a good time. And it seemed like the entire city of Minneapolis was there that day. So, Noah, on a more downbeat note, you're being let down by your vehicles. Sad to say. Very sad to say. Thank you for your commiseration. I I, I proselytize about the suburban lifestyle, but one of the worst parts of it is having to have these vehicles. And my neighbors have been shaming me over the lack of treads on the tires of my family car. So I took that in, got the... brand new set of tires and oh it turns out you got to replace the brake pads so i replaced the brake pads very exorbitant but had to be done so i did it and then you know i'm like okay well i'll absorb that hit and i can just you know we'll, we'll recoup and then i'll i'll go back to the other car because i have this 20 year old workhorse suv that should only be driven to and from home depot that's its purpose <laughs> and it gets a little bit more of a workout than that but so no sooner did i get the family car back than the brakes on that one go just like shot on me and i can't stop the car as i'm rolling downhill it's kind of a terrifying experience. Mm. not the first yeah, time that's, that's not happened. good not the first time but that has happened so and so, what, so what do you do you kind of tur- turn into the curb you or just f- push your foot down into the floor as far as it possibly can go and hope something gets traction there and like maybe you'll roll through a red light again this has happened to me so what'd you do what'd you do in this well, case I, I actually try to like steer a little bit to try to draw stop uh-huh. you know, the momentum to like yeah. steer a little bit here and then steer back like, into like on a to, ski like, slope going back and forth some momentum put on the hazards roll through a stoplight yeah. it's it's a harrowing experience and, and how did you stop just just inertia then you find like a hill and, and your inertia stops mm, and you're okay. I'm very fortunate that there's nothing else in my way if, so if it was, was in my was, way I'd hit it so was the light was it a green light that you rolled through? It was, yes. I'm okay, very, very fortunate. But it wasn't as I was rolling up to it. So I like kind of maneuvered into somebody's driveway to try to stop going <laughs> and then back into the I road. I don't think you should wow. be allowed to drive anymore. <laughs> not my fault, Charlie. This is the car. I'm trying so, to tell you. The, the, car, so you the car that you are in charge of maintaining. Correct. That's true. I, so, I, am, so what, I am negligent and neglectful. So anyways, what you, what you need is a, uh, as a backup is a golf cart. Oh, now you're t- now this is like listening to my wife. Yes, that's what she wants. She wants <laughs> really? like an all-terrain vehicle. There yeah, you go. For no reason. We don't have enough property for it. She just wants to roll around the neighborhood in a golf cart or a, or a quad. And, uh, yeah, that's, I think you need that's fewer vehicles, not, not more. <laughs> I think I need more. So, Charlie, you saw Dungeons & Dragons, the movie. I did. And movie night, the kids wanted to watch this movie. We got my brother-in-law to watch it first and tell us whether it was suitable for the kids, which it was. It was yeah, just I think fun. What, I think what we need to do, I, Jim has seen it too. So, uh, uh, on the uh, model of what Maddie and I did last episode, <laughs> we'll have an extra, extra discussion about Dungeons and Dragons and, and well, the, the critical reception. Give you the cutting edge review. So. <laughs> this movie ago. was good, but it was very light, and that's what I liked about it. It was uh, what I would call a Saturday afternoon movie. There was nothing much to it. It was pretty well made. There was funny moments. It was nicely acted. The effects were good. You wouldn't write home about it. You certainly wouldn't do a podcast on it. But it was worth the time. So if you like movies that are forgettable but entertaining and you have kids and you're looking for something to watch, Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves is a good option. So I went to the commentary roast. I, I believe what Noah the thirteenth is it the thirteenth annual roast. I mean this thing is uh, it was uh, yes uh, the thirteenth yes the thirteenth yeah annual. so it's it's become a real institution in honor. We didn't see each other. I was there too. I, I saw you for, and I tried to catch you, but I but I couldn't. Um, I, I saw you. 
uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a great night. Honored Tom Cotton, who is a great senator in any circumstance, but has really outdone himself in the last month in the debate over Israel and Gaza. And and this this thing, you know, it, it's so suffused with with John Podort's spirit. I mean, it's basically a, a giant variety show. <laughs> so so there are roasting speeches, but there there's music, you know, and there there are video clips. And I just love the clip he used to start the uh, the night from a, a movie about the Entebbe raid and the, these guys and and no i just don't don't know if, know enough but they're playing some some board game involving dice uh on this big big plane heading to this raid you know or god knows what's gonna what's gonna happen they're all gonna put their lives at risk and and one of the guys starts humming this the uh, the song heina matoff is that how you say it Noah? Oh, you're asking the wrong person oh sorry okay so um this traditional Jewish song based on Psalm 133, which apparently is sung, um, you know, at every Jewish camp in in the country, and the guy starts humming it, and then the guy he's he's playing the, the guys he's playing the game with start humming it, and then they start singing it, and then the other guys, you know, like 200 guys jammed in this plane, they they start singing it, and before you know it, they're clapping and they're on their feet, and and it's it's about why it's it's good to be together as brothers, and it's just it was extremely. Uh, moving. John had cut out for some reason, or I missed it. I, I've watched this now several times. This clip on on my own. But Charles Bronson is is the the leader of this uh, this raid, or at least this this um, one, one plane that's going in this raid. And you see him in the, the cockpit, you know, grim faced and hearing the song, is sort of taking note of it. But the point John uh, made is, you know, uh, resolve is correct in this moment, and, and also, um, you know, joy and and togetherness that's that's part of the equation as well but anyway it was a great all-round night with that it's time for our editor's picks jim garrity what's your pick i'm going to go with my co-panelist noah uh most recently the biden administration loses its stomach for israel's self-defense look if you're on the right side of the aisle you're used to being disappointed by biden and his administration and by the standards of the administration as a whole by the standards of the left, by the standards of the Democratic Party. Yeah, this is one of Biden's better moments and better issues. But the answers that Biden was giving at the very beginning of this crisis, in the aftermath of the Hamas massacre, are different from what Biden is saying now. And I think Noah's got a very fine-tuned antenna for measuring where, how, you know, how um, enthusiastically and how firmly Biden is uh, standing by Israel and when he starts to go wobbly, as Margaret Thatcher once warned of George H.W. Bush. Biden has gone wobbly. Noah lays it out very succinctly and carefully and fair-mindedly, and uh, I think everybody should read it. Noah, what's your pick? Uh, your piece, Rich. It is The New Arab Street is Here at Home. Um, much to my chagrin, we have seen um, expressions of what we would in another age and maybe 20 years ago uh, attribute to the quote-unquote Arab street, um, the, the eruption of which we were deeply afraid of and uh, informed policy around avoiding, uh, have seen that uh, really become sort of a feature of Western politics, not just Western Europe, but here at home. And it contrasts really with the actual Arab street. And we saw this eruption after this uh, false report about a strike on a hospital, which was suggestive of what the Sunni regimes are afraid of themselves and want to give a, you know space to, to let them vent. But otherwise, these are controlled societies. And you don't see these kind of expressions of hostility 
towards Israel in an uncon- uncontrolled, unconstrained fashion like that, that could really present a real menace to the stability of the regime. You don't see that. You see that in Western Europe. You see that in the United States. And it's uh, profoundly disheartening, and your piece is good uh, identifying that phenomenon. Thanks, Noah. Charlie? Well, I'm going to pick Dan McLaughlin's post. Chris Christie and Doug Burgum should be next, because I wrote this one-paragraph corner post saying that Tim Scott was out, and this was good because he wasn't going to win, and it showed that, like Mike Pence, he was actually running for president, but that we shouldn't expect anyone else to follow suit because the two most likely next droppies are Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy, and neither of them is actually running for president, and therefore they're not going to drop out. And Dan took this one paragraph corner post and turned it into a five paragraph explanation of exactly why Chris Christie and Doug Burgum should be next and where they sit in the race. And it was a lovely little example of Dan's ability to spin gold out Mm -hmm. of straw. Absolutely. So my pick is from the latest print edition, the second monthly edition of National Review ever by Seth Cropsey, a a strategist uh, with a focus on naval affairs. And the piece is titled, It's Looking Like the 1930s. He makes an analogy to the situation we faced in the 1930s and draws out the strategic implications and what we should do about it. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast and rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National U magazine. It's strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Sarah, by the way, is heading off to a big trip. I'm going to tease that. We'll hear all about it in a week or two. Thanks to Charlie, Noah, and Jim. Thanks to Moink at Bethlehem College, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.